Chapter 44 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Dread, Chapter 44, The Desert. There's no study in human nature more interesting than the aspects of the same subject seen in the points of view of different characters. One might almost imagine that there were no such thing as absolute truth, since a change of situation or temperament is capable of changing the whole force of an argument. We have been accustomed, even those of us who feel most, to look on the arguments for and against the system of slavery with the eyes of those who are at ease. We do not even know how fair is freedom, for we were always free. We shall never have all the materials for absolute truth on this subject till we take into account with our own views and reasonings the views and reasonings of those who have bowed down to the yoke and felt the iron enter into their souls, we all console ourselves too easily for the sorrows of others. We talk and reason coolly of that which, did we feel it ourselves, would take away all power of composure and self-control. We have seen how the masters feel and reason, and how good men feel and reason, whose public opinion and Christian fellowship support the master and give him confidence in his position. We must add, also, to our estimate, the feelings and reasonings of the slave, and therefore the reader must follow us again to the fastness in the dismal swamp. It is a calm, still, Indian summer afternoon. The whole air is flooded with a golden haze in which the treetops move dreamily to and fro, as if in a whispering reverie. The wild climbing grapevines, which hang in thousandfold festoons around the enclosure, are purpling with grapes. The little settlement now has among its inmates old Tiff and his children, and Harry and his wife. The children and Tiff had been received in the house of the widow whose husband had fallen a victim to the hunters, as we mentioned in one of our former chapters. All had united in building for Harry and Lisette a cabin contiguous to the other. Old Tiff, with his habitual industry, might now be seen hoeing in the sweet potato patch, which belonged to the common settlement. The children were roaming up and down, looking after autumn flowers and grapes. Dread, who had been out all the night before, was now lying on the ground on the shady side of the clearing with an old, much-worn, much-thumbed copy of the Bible by his side. It was the Bible of Denmark Vesey's, and in many a secret meeting its wild, inspiring poetry had sounded like a trumpet in his youthful ear. He lay with his elbow resting on the ground, his hands supporting his massive head and his large, gloomy, dark eyes fixed in reverie on the moving treetops as they waved in the golden blue. Now his eye followed sailing islands of white cloud, drifting to and fro above them. There were elements in him 
which might under other circumstances have made him a poet his frame capacious and energetic as it was had yet that keenness of excitability which places the soul on rapport with all the great forces of nature the only book which he had been much in the habit of reading the book in fact which had been the nurse and forming power of his soul was the bible distinguished above all other literature for its intense sympathy with nature dread indeed resembled in organization and tone of mind some of those men of old who were dwellers in the wilderness and drew their inspiration from the desert it is remarkable that in all ages communities and individuals who have suffered under oppression have always fled for refuge to the old testament and to the book of revelation in the new even if not definitely understood these magnificent compositions have a wild inspiring power like a wordless yet impassioned symphony played by a sublime orchestra in which deep and awful sub-bass instruments mingle with those of ethereal softness and wild minors twine and interlace with marches of battles and bursts of victorious harmony they are much mistaken who say that nothing is efficient as a motive that is not definitely understood who ever thought of understanding the mingled wail and roar of the marseillaise just this kind of indefinite stimulating power has the bible to the souls of the oppressed there is also a disposition which has manifested itself since the primitive times by which the human soul bowed down beneath the weight of mighty oppressions and despairing in its own weakness seizes with avidity the intimations of a coming judgment in which the son of man appearing in his glory and all his holy angels with him shall right earth's mighty wrongs in dread's mind this thought had acquired an absolute ascendancy all things in nature and in revelation he interpreted by this key during the prevalence of the cholera he had been pervaded by a wild and solemn excitement to him it was the opening of a seal the sounding of the trumpet of the first angel and other woes were yet to come he was not a man of personal malignity to any human being when he contemplated schemes of insurrection and bloodshed he contemplated them with the calm immovable firmness of one who felt himself an instrument of doom in a mightier hand in fact although seldom called into exercise by the incidents of his wild and solitary life there was in him a vein of that gentleness which softens the heart toward children and the inferior animals the amusement of his vacant hours was sometimes to exercise his peculiar gifts over the animal creation by drawing towards him the birds and squirrels from the coverts of the forest and giving them food indeed he commonly carried corn in the hunting dress which he wore to use for this purpose just at this moment as he lay absorbed in reverie he heard teddy who was near him calling to his sister oh fanny do come and see the squirrel he is so pretty fanny came running eagerly where is he she said oh he is gone he just went behind that tree 
The children, in their eagerness, had not perceived how near they were to dread. He had turned his face towards them, and was looking at them with a pleased expression, approaching to a smile. "'Do you want to see him?' he said. "'Stop a few minutes.' He rose and scattered a train of corn between him and the thicket, and sitting down on the ground began making a low sound resembling the call of a squirrel to its young. In a few moments Teddy and Fanny were in a tremor of eager excitement as a pair of little bright eyes appeared among the leaves, and gradually their owner, a brisk little squirrel, came out and began rapidly filling its chops with the corn. Dred still continued, with his eyes fixed on the animal, to make the same noise. Very soon two others were seen following their comrade. The children laughed when they saw the headmost squirrel walk into Dred's hand, which he had laid upon the ground. The others soon followed his example. Dred took them up and softly stroking them, they seemed to become entirely amenable to his will. And to amuse the children, he let them go into his hunting pouch to eat the corn that was there. After this, they seemed to make a rambling expedition over his whole person, investigating his pockets, hiding themselves in the bosom of his shirt, and seemingly, apparently, perfectly fearless and at home. Fanny reached out with her hand timidly. Won't they come to me? she said. No, daughter, they don't know you. In the new earth the enmity will be taken away, and then they'll come. I wonder what he means by the new earth, said Fanny. Dred seemed to feel a kind of pleasure in the admiration of the children, to which perhaps no one is wholly insensible. He proceeded, therefore, to show them some other of his accomplishments. The wood was resounding with the afternoon song of birds, and Dred suddenly began answering one of the songsters with an exact imitation of his note. The bird eventually heard it, and answered back with still more spirit, and thus an animated conversation was kept up for some time. You see that I understand the speech of birds. After the great judgment, the elect shall talk with the birds and the beasts in the new earth. Every kind of bird has a different language, in which they show why men should magnify the Lord and turn from their wickedness. But the sinners cannot hear it, because their ear is waxed gross. I didn't know, said Fanny, hesitating. As that was so, how did you find it out? The Spirit of the Lord revealed it unto me, child. What is the Spirit? said Fanny, who felt more encouraged as she saw Dred stroking his squirrel. It's the Spirit that spoke in the old prophets. Did it tell you what the birds say? I am not perfected in holiness yet, and cannot receive it. But the birds fly up near the heavens, wherefore they learn droppings of the speech of angels. I never kill the birds, because the Lord hath set them between us and the angels for a sign. What else did the spirit tell you? said Teddy. He showed me that there was a language in the leaves, for I rose and looked, and behold, there were signs drawn on the leaves, and forms of every living things with strange words, which the wicked understand not. 
but the elect shall read them. And behold, the signs are in blood, which is the blood of the Lamb, that descendeth like dew from heaven. Fanny looked puzzled. Who are the elect? she said. They? They are the hundred and forty and four thousand that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, and the angels have charge, saying, Hurt not the earth till these are sealed in their forehead. Fanny instinctively put her hand to her forehead. Do you think they'll seal me? she said. Yes, such as you are of the kingdom. Did the spirit tell you that? said Fanny, who felt some considerable anxiety. Yea, the spirit hath shown me many such things. It hath also revealed to me the knowledge of the elements, the revolutions of the planets, the operations of the tide, and changes of the seasons. Fanny looked doubtfully, and taking up her basket of wild grapes, slowly moved off, thinking that she would ask Tiff about it. At this moment there came a rustling in the branches of the oak tree, which overhung a part of the clearing, near where Dread was lying, and Harry soon dropped from the branches on to the ground. Dread started up to receive him. How is it? Will they come? Yes. By midnight tonight they will be here. See here, he added, taking a letter from his pocket, what I have received. It was the letter which Clayton had written to Harry. It was remarkable, as Dredd received it, how the wandering mystical expression of his face immediately gave place to one of shrewd and practical earnestness. He sat down on the ground, laid it on his knee, and followed the lines with his finger. Some passages he seemed to read over two or three times with the greatest attention, and he would pause after reading them and sit with his eyes fixed gloomily on the ground. The last part seemed to agitate him strongly. He gave a sort of suppressed groan. Harry, he said, turning to him at last, behold, the day shall come when the Lord shall take out of our hand the cup of trembling and put it into the hand of those that oppress us. Our soul is exceedingly filled now with the scorning of them that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. The prophets prophesy falsely, the rulers bear rule by their means, and the people love to have it so. But what will it be in the end thereof? Their own wickedness shall reprove them, and their backsliding shall correct them. Listen to me, Harry, he said, taking up his Bible, and see what the Lord saith unto thee. Thus saith the Lord my God, Feed the flock of the slaughter, whose possessors slay them, and hold themselves not guilty. And they that sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their own shepherds pity them not. For I will no more pity the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. But, lo, I will deliver the men, every one into his neighbor's hand, and into the hand of his king, and they shall smite the land, and out of their hand I will not deliver them. And I will feed the flock of slaughter, even you, O ye poor of the flock. 
and I took unto me two staves, the one I call beauty, and the other I call bands, and I fed the flock, and I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, so the poor of the flock that waited on me knew it was the word of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine other stave, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundations of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about. Also in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut to pieces. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and every rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes on the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people on the right and the left. Harry, these things are written for our learning. We will go up and take away her battlements, for they are not the Lord's. The gloomy fervor with which Dred read these words of Scripture, selecting as his eye glanced down the prophetic pages, passages whose images most affected his own mind, carried with it an overpowering mesmeric force. Who shall say that in this world where all things are symbolic, bound together by mystical resemblances, and where one event is the archetype of thousands, that there is not an eternal significance in these old prophecies. Do they not bring with them springing and germinate fulfillments? Wherever there is a haughty and oppressive nation and a flock of slaughter. Harry, I have fasted and prayed before the Lord, lying all night on my face, yet the token cometh not. Behold, there are prayers that resist me. The Lamb yet beareth, and the opening of the second seal delayeth. Yet the Lord had shown unto me that we should be up and doing to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The Lord hath said unto me, Speak to the elders and to the prudent men, and prepare their hearts. One thing, said Harry, fills me with apprehension. Hark, that brought me this letter, was delayed in getting back, and I'm afraid that he'll get into trouble. Tom Gordon is raging like a fury over the people of our plantation. They have always been held under a very mild rule, and everyone knows that a plantation so managed is not so immediately profitable as it can be made for a short time by forcing everything up to the highest notch. He has got a man there for overseer, old Hokum, that has been famous for his hardness and meanness and he has delivered the people unreservedly into his hands. He drinks and frolics, 
and has his oyster suppers and swears he'll shoot any one that brings him a complaint hokum is to pay him so much yearly and have to himself all that he makes over tom gordon keeps two girls there that he bought for himself and his fellows just as he wanted to keep my wife be patient harry this is a great christianizing institution said dread with a tone of grave irony i am afraid for hark said harry he is the bravest of brave fellows he is ready to do anything for us but if he is taken there will be no mercy dread looked on the ground gloomily hark was to be here to-night yes said harry i wish we may see him harry when they come to-night read them the declaration of independence of these united states and then let each one judge of our afflictions and the afflictions of their fathers and the lord shall judge between us i must go and seek counsel of the lord dread rose and giving a leap from the ground caught on the branch of the oak which overhung their head and swinging himself up on the limb climbed in the thickness of the branches and disappeared from view harry walked to the other side of the clearing where his lodge had been erected he found lizette busy within she ran to meet him and threw her arms around his neck i am so glad you've come back harry it was so dreadful to think what may happen to you while you are gone harry i think we could be very happy here see what a nice bed i have made in this corner out of leaves and moss the women are both very kind and i am glad we have got old tiff and the children here it makes it seem more natural see i went out with them this afternoon how many grapes i have got what have you been talking to that dreadful man about do you know harry he makes me afraid they say he is a prophet do you think he is i don't know child said harry abstractedly don't stay with him too much said lizette he'll make you as gloomy as he is do i need any one to make me gloomy said harry am i not gloomy enough am i not an outcast and you too lizette it isn't so very dreadful to be an outcast said lizette god makes wild grapes for us if we are outcasts yes child said harry you are right and the sun shines so pleasant this afternoon said lizette yes said harry but by and by cold storms and rain will come and frosty weather well said lizette then we will think what to do next but don't let us lose this afternoon and these grapes at any rate end of chapter forty four the desert